0: Thanks again, Angela. All right, so uh, today we are going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. So if you have a Bible, would you turn there? Um, And if not, you can read along. This is what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for eye, or tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them, the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat also. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Father, Son, Son, Holy Spirit help us to hear and see what it is that you would want for us for our lives and for our world through these words today we pray in jesus name amen this morning i'm drawing from a few different sources a guy named e stanley jones um, dallas willard and gerald johnson now in his book the divine conspiracy dallas willard is a philosopher and used to teach at usc and speaking about Jesus says this, he says, can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if he were not smart? If he were divine, would he be dumb? He's not just nice, he'll go on to say, he is brilliant. He is the smartest man who ever lived. Whoever, not whoever. He always has the best information on everything and certainly also on the things that matter most in human life. If you don't believe Jesus is brilliant, if you don't believe that he has the best information on everything that matters most, then what you hear him say today will seem impossible to you. His words will go in one ear and out the other, and you'll leave here unchanged. But if you do hear his words, if you embrace them, there's no way you can leave unchanged. If you really hear him and embrace him today, you'll join him in what Dallas Wheeler calls his cosmic conspiracy to overcome evil with good. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus outlines this way of being human that is only possible by coming into contact with Jesus. And what we're looking at today is this fifth of six examples where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Two weeks ago, I said that his words on marriage and divorce were the most challenging. But I think that today's words may be the most revolutionary. Today, he talks about something that seems to go against like the very, our very nature, what we're inclined to do. And he teaches us about non-retaliation. He teaches us about overcoming evil with good. And the way he does this is a very similar format to what he's been doing. He highlights the old command. He gives us what seems to be a new one, and then he'll usually apply it with a few different examples. And that's what he does here. So, why don't we look at the old command? You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. When Jesus says this, he is working with one of the oldest laws of civilization. He is working with Lex Talionis, which means this law of just retribution. And it's actually found in the earliest known law book called the Code of Hammurabi. If you're into, like, ancient civilizations, you will have heard about this law book. This law book, the the Code of Hammurabi, was formulated in around 2260 B.C. And this law is also found in the Old Testament. You can see it in Deuteronomy 19, Leviticus 24, and in Exodus 21, in a section there called case laws. And if you read Exodus 21, verses 23 and 25, you you get this picture. It says this. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now we hear that, and to our 21st century minds, we're like, what? That sounds pretty, it seems really like intense. But there's three things you need to know about lex talionis, this law of just retribution. One was that justice was administered by the courts, not individuals. These situations were entrusted to the judges, not anyone, definitely not to individuals. And before the establishment of this law, any member of the offended family could injure or kill any member of the offending family. And we see this kind of mentality at work today in our world. We may hear about this in other countries, but we can also see it in our city. We see this at work in the gang warfare that's going on in our city. This is happening. This law took revenge out of the private hands and put it in public courts. Essentially, if revenge had to happen, it could only be taken by the courts. The second thing you need to know is that this goal was to actually limit revenge. This law limited the victim's compensation to the exact equivalent. The punishment had to fit the crime. It couldn't be more so if someone broke your arm, you couldn't say, well, okay, I get to break your arm and your finger. It didn't work like that. This was about restricting compensation to the value of the loss. And third, it was an accommodation. It was an accommodation to fallen nature. This stipulation is properly called not a law, but a permission. It accommodated the need for revenge. It's essentially like God saying, if you must have compensation, at least make it fair. If you cannot refrain from revenge, at least be civil, foot for foot, not life for foot. The last point here is absolutely vital to understand because it was an accommodation from God's original intent. From the beginning, it has been God's will that no human being seek revenge and that no human being seek to retaliate. How do we know this? Because if you read the story of Scripture, God himself told this to his people, Israel. If you read Leviticus 19, verse 2, God starts off by saying, Be holy, because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And then if you continue to read the rest of chapter 19 of Leviticus, God spells out what it means to be holy. It's God fleshing out his vision for holiness. And the climax of it is in verse 18, where he says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the law of just retribution, this lex talionis, was given for those who couldn't find it within themselves to resist revenge. It was an accommodation to God's original intent for his people. And so now we come to Jesus' words. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And now we can begin to see what Jesus is actually doing here. He is calling us back to God's prior, more perfect will. Now, of course, his wording is a little confusing. What does Jesus mean when he says, do not resist an evil person? What does he mean here? Well, why don't we start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he is calling you to turn someone else's cheek. He never calls you to do that. This doesn't mean if someone forces your friend or family member to walk a mile, stand by and let them. He's not saying that. It doesn't mean if someone takes advantage of your child, give them your other child. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't mean stand passively by when others are mistreated by evil persons. Jesus teaches the opposite. In Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, we are to confront those who are doing wrong. He says, if your brothers or sister sins, go and point out their fault. And he says, do it privately at first. But he says, confront it, address it. New Testament scholar Pinchas Lapida was this Jew living in Germany and he loved the Sermon on the Mount and he wrote a book on it. And he says, Jesus' command, love your neighbor as yourself, forbids one to stand by immobile, and tolerant while the life, dignity, or security of one's neighbor is transgressed. So when he says, do not resist an evil person, he is not saying, passively watch others be mistreated. That isn't it. That's not what he's calling his people to. Nor is Jesus calling us to be passive in general. Some people have mistakenly interpreted Jesus as saying that. Jesus is saying, look, when we're injured by this evil person, we're just to stand there and take it. That's not what he's saying. The temptation when hearing Jesus' words is to hear them as something completely removed from our situation, from our lives, from reality. Something that doesn't work. But his words and commands are not removed from the challenges we face, from the reality of evil. He gets it. He actually gets it better than we do. So what is he saying then when he says, do not resist an evil person? We need to understand that Jesus is judging the person and nature of the act as evil. He's calling a spade a spade. He is saying the person who wants to injure us is evil. This tells us he's not actually out of touch with reality when he calls us to this different way of life he knows how evil is and it's because he knows how uh, how evil really is that he speaks the way he does you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth but i tell you do not resist an evil person what does this mean well jesus begins to unpack the meaning of this with four illustrations four pictures of what this looks like in practice. And as we see, this is not a call to passivity, but a call to actively overcome evil with good. So let's look at them in order. So the first picture in verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, Jesus here is not talking about any regular old slap. Only a left-handed person can hit the right side of uh, the, the person facing them. Therefore, Jesus is speaking of a backhanded slap. This is a gesture of contempt. He's talking about a deliberate insult forcing pain and humiliation. So is Jesus saying, if anyone slaps you, let them slap you on the other cheek. No, that's not what he says. If you read it, he's, Jesus says, turn to them, the other cheek. That's a different matter. Turn to them. Jesus doesn't say, turn the other cheek. That's often how it comes out when you and I discuss this, which is actually really passive. What Jesus says is, turn to them, the other cheek. There's this active engagement. It means you are changing the dynamics in this moment. You've wrested the offensive from the evil person. You've changed the dynamics. Yeah, I mean, they may hurt you again, but you are actually in charge of your response. We're not called to be passive, but to take initiative and exercise our agency to actively overcome evil with good. And key to understanding this, uh, Marian Oxberger will say, Jesus is calling us to the freedom of not having your behavior determined by the way we are treated. Jesus is calling us to the freedom of not having your behavior determined by the way we are treated. Don't let your actions be determined by someone else's actions. Okay, like, do you know where this comes out for me? Is when I'm on the road. I'm on the highway, and someone, I'm not going to say what I think of them, will will do something that just drives me nuts. Either they're driving recklessly, they cut you off, they, they force their way in, What is it that I want to do? My heart's inclination in the moment is to want to ride them as close as possible, like let them know uh, they're not being safe, or just start hoping, man, I hope a cop pulls them over in just a few feet, you know, a few feet, whatever. Like inside of me, there's everything that's just pulling me towards, like wanting to avenge this so-called wrong that I've experienced. But what Jesus wants for us is not to have our actions determined by someone else's actions. And you'll get, begin to see this as we look at these other pictures. In the second picture, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now Jesus here isn't talking about any, just any attempt to take your possessions. Your, your shirt or your tunic was this large undershirt Uh, with sleeves that was worn next to your body and then you had uh, what would be called your translations might have it as a cloak it was a shirt and it was a loose fitting coat that went over your tunic the tunic and the cloak were the only items that most people had at the time so to sue, sue someone for these two things was this terrible miscarriage of justice you were trying to take them for everything And the Old Testament actually taught that this kind of behavior brought the sewer into direct conflict with Yahweh, who identifies himself as the protector of the powerless. So is Jesus saying, if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him sue you for more? No, that is not what he's saying. Jesus doesn't let, Jesus doesn't say let him sue you. Jesus says something far more intentional. He says, hand over your coat also. In other words, before they can even sue you for more, give them more. Beat them to the punch. Why? Because when you do, you wrest the offensive from the evil one. You have shifted the ground and you've engaged engaged your opponent in a game for which they're not prepared. They are not ready for this. The third picture Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now this word rendered forces that we get in English, in the Greek, is actually a military term. Roman soldiers had the right to commandeer any Jew and force him to carry his baggage for a mile. And we get an example of this on Good Friday, when Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry the cross of Jesus. To be forced to carry the burden of your colonizer as the Romans would have been seen was this degrading act of exploitation. So does Jesus say if someone forces you to go one mile, let him exploit you for a second? I bet you some of us hear that and that's what we think. But he isn't. Jesus doesn't say let him go further. Jesus says go with him for two miles. Why? Before he can exploit you for more, turn the tables on them. Offer to go another mile because you are not a slave of him. When you offer to go another mile, you are now in charge. You are setting the agenda. He forces you to carry. If he forces you to carry another mile, you are a slave. But if you volunteer to take it another mile, you are not a slave. You're setting that agenda. Now imagine with me, after that first mile, the soldier gets ready to take the bag, but as he reaches for it, you actually pull it back. And he says, what are you doing? I didn't order you to take it for more. I said take it for one. And you say, yeah, but I'm not under your orders. The whole situation changes when you go the second mile. Slapped, sued, commandeered by soldiers, and then we come to this fourth And different picture. It's almost anticlimactic if you read it. It seems so mundane. The fourth picture, verse 42. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Frederick Dale Bruner, he says, by using this illustration last, Matthew's Jesus teaches us, again, that the dual tests of discipleship occur in daily and thus seemingly unheroic situations. Now, this isn't just any old request, though. This is a request that takes advantage of another person. Does Jesus say, when someone asks you for something, give it to them? Give it to them. Lend it to them. No. If you read what it says, what he says, you read his words closely, there's no it in the text. To give whatever someone asks is passive. And it actually may be wrong. And as parents, we don't do that with our kids. We don't just give them anything and everything that they ask us for. St. Augustine, he notes this difference. He says, Jesus isn't saying give whatever you are asked, but rather give to whomever asks. The emphasis then is not on things or an object, but on the person. The what isn't the focus here. It's the who. Jesus isn't actually concerned with things, but with people. Give to the one is not about a specific request. It's about relationship to the person. It goes beyond the person's surface request and engages that person. Again, this is not a call then to passivity. It's actually a call to active engagement with the person who is asking. What you'll see then is in all four illustrations, there's nothing that is passive about what Jesus is calling his people to do. Jesus is saying, don't get even, yes. But he's also saying, instead, go. Go on the offensive and not in the way you would think. Act in a way that changes the dynamics of that encounter. Now I get, even with running through these four illustrations, you're still like, I don't know if I'm getting what, what Jesus is trying to get at here. I don't. Th- I feel like I'm not getting the full picture. And I feel you if that's you. One of the people who's been uh, perhaps most helpful this week in trying to make sense of what it is that Jesus calls us to is this man named E. Stanley Jones. He was a missionary. He lived in India. He wrote a number of books, and one of them was called The Christ of the Mount. And I'm going to read to you uh, a fairly long quote, I'm going to drink water to get my throat ready. And um, I think what he does here is, is help give you this framework for what it is that Jesus is really doing. So I hope it, it's helpful for you. This is what he says uh, what, when he talks about what should we be done when someone wrongs us. The temptation, he says, to use the weapons of the wrongdoer, to fight on his level, to give blow for blow, that, that is the temptation, is to use those weapons. Don't do it, said Jesus. For if you do, then blows will beget blows. Hate will beget hate, and you will find yourself in a vicious circle or cycle. Get out of it by rising to a higher level and by using higher weapons. The level of unfailing love and the weapons of unquenchable goodwill. He will go on to say, Allowing a man to smite you on one cheek and letting him have the coat, and submitting to him when he compels you to go one mile does little or no good. The fact is that it does harm to the man who does it and to the one who submits to it. Then he says this, It is the other cheek, the cloak also, the second mile, that do the trick. It is this plus that that turns the scale, the one cheek, the coat, and the one mile. This is passive resistance. But turning the other cheek, giving the cloak also, and going the second mile, this is, active, this is an active resistance on the plane of unquenchable goodwill. Passive resistance may reveal nothing but weakness. This active resistance of love reveals nothing but strength. Jesus is shifting the way he wants his people to engage in this world when we encounter wrong. And it's so counter to what we are used to that even as we hear this, it's like, yeah, I still don't know if I'm buying it, though. I kind of like my own way. It feels better, at least in the immediate. What Jesus is calling us to is not easy. There's probably no other passage in the Sermon on the Mount that causes more people to throw up their hands in despair or to sink into some kind of grinding legalism than this one. And it's because of his teaching like this and others in the Sermon on the Mount that when people, Christians, come and read this, they think, you know what, the Sermon on the Mount, it's largely ethics that convict us of sin. It makes us aware of this massive gap in how we failed and the sin in our lives. And it does do that, but it's not just that. Others have come to it and said the Sermon on the Mount, it's like this ethics of encounter. We see Jesus, the true human, and what, he's, what humanity is meant to be, and we see this gap and how much we need him. And it is that, but it's not just that. Others, I think, have rightly identified that the Sermon on the Mount are these ethics of the inbreaking kingdom of God. In other words, this is what it looks like when God's kingdom breaks into his broken, his world that's been broken by sin. They are describing a new reality made possible by Jesus. David Bosch, he says, In Jesus, Jesus' is coming, the kingdom of God, quote, ceases to be merely a future reality towards which we're on the way. It has invaded and permeated our earthly historical existence and is transforming it. So when Jesus calls us to, the picture he wants us to see, this is what happens when the kingdom of God comes. This is what happens when you come into contact with me because I am the bringer of the kingdom of God. It's not for the distant future. It's actually for anyone who comes into contact with me. Jesus is only calling us to do what he himself will do for us. And in this way, the preacher on the mount preaches what he practices. Because in the last 24 hours of his life, Jesus was anything but passive. At every moment, he engaged with the battle of evil in front of him. Think with me in the garden. When Judas leads a cohort of Roman soldiers to come and arrest Jesus, he finds Jesus and kisses him on the cheek. Does Jesus reject him in this moment? Does Jesus smack him in this moment? No, what does Jesus do? He calls him friend. Do what you must, friend. When Peter sees that Jesus is about to be arrested, and he pulls out a blade and uses the weapons of the enemy and slices off the ear of Malchus, servant of the high priest, does Jesus say, good job, well done, my servant? No, He rebukes him. He calls him out. First, he actually bends over, picks up the ear, and actually restores it to the servant. And then when he confronts Peter, he says, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. He judges the ways of evil. He calls it out, and he restores the one who's actually coming and helping arrest him. When Jesus stands before Pilate, he's crowned with, with thorns. He's wrapped in a robe meant to mock him. His silence before Pilate is not fear, nor is it contempt, it is mercy. And Pilate recognizes and actually becomes fearful, recognizing that the prisoner standing before him was judging the judge. And when Jesus hangs on the cross, he doesn't ask for mercy from the angry mob. He commends them to mercy before his heavenly Father. In every moment in the last 24 hours of his life and throughout his life, Jesus does not respond with vengeance, though he has every right to. He responds with love and mercy. This is not passive What he calls his people to on the Sermon on the Mount is not anything he's not willing to do himself. Jesus had every right to strike back, but if he had done that, then we would not have been talking about Jesus this morning. He would not be someone that we lay down our life for because he would have been so much more like you and I. If he had struck one blow in return, That would have been the death blow to the gospel that he came to bring. Jesus refused to use the weapons of this world to establish his kingdom. Because his kingdom, though it's not of this world, it is for this world. He turned to us his other cheek. And in doing so, the blow did not fall on his other cheek, but actually upon our hearts. Jesus overcame evil with good, hatred with love, and the world through the cross. And this is the only way that evil can be defeated. And this is what you and I are called to as his people. And I understand that this feels so upside down. But that's only because we've been living upside down for so long. And he calls us to actually see the life that he has for him. E. Stanley Jones, he highlights these three levels of life. The lowest level is returning evil for good. This is the way of evil. This is ultimately demonic. When you live in this way, you become evil. Nothing in the universe will back you. The sum total of reality of God's created order is against you, and you will perish, either quickly or slowly. Eventually, you will perish. Those who love war will perish. In the eyes of the kingdom, this is pure weakness. The second level is to return good for good. This is the way of the world. This is legalistic. This is the other man's conduct determining yours. This is how the majority of the world lives. This is lex talionis. You get your code of conduct from other people's actions. You have no moral standards of your own. This is what East Stanley Jones says. He says, you are an echo. When applied to the nation's The system leads straight to war, for you have allowed the conduct of another nation to determine yours. The lower-acting nation inevitably pulls the higher-acting nation down to the lower-acting nation's level, and there is war. Return good for evil, and it leads to your enabling and to the possible redemption of the wrongdoer. And in in case he is not redeemed, nevertheless, you are strengthened, he says. You cannot end a war by having another war. There can't be a war that ends all wars. War has always produced more war, which is why he will say war is an attempt to act like the devil in order to get the devil out of people. And it doesn't work, it's so backwards. If you and I live on the second level of good for good, you will live like an echo. This is not real power. This is pseudo power. Ultimately, it is weakness. And then the third level is to return good for evil. This is the highest level. This is the way of Jesus. When you come into contact with Jesus and he grabs hold of your life, you are not an echo not an echo of the nations or the wrongdoer, the hurtful things they do and say, do not determine how you behave. You become an echo of the one who said, Father, forgive them. You become an echo of the one who loved his enemies and prayed for them. You become an echo of the one who laid down his life for them in love. And when you draw from that source, you have pure power. When you live in this place, you become invincible. The question for you and I is not, will you be an echo of someone? Every single one of us will echo. We are echoing someone. The question is, of all the voices that clamor for your attention and affections, which will you echo out into this world? Don't echo evil. Don't echo your best efforts even. Echo Jesus, the source of all good, mercy, and love. So here we come back to Dallas Willard's idea that Jesus is brilliant, that he really is brilliant. And if you don't believe it, and this will go in one ear and out the other. And if you read his book, he keeps picking up on this idea that Jesus really always has the best information on everything that matters most in life. And he says at one point, he says, To become a disciple of Jesus is to accept now that inversion of human distinctions that will sooner or later be forced upon everyone by the irresistible reality of his kingdom. How must we think of him to see the inversion from our present viewpoint? We must simply accept that he is the best and smartest man who ever lived in this world, that he is now even the prince of the kings of the earth. Then, he says, we heartily join his cosmic conspiracy to overcome evil with good. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, says Jesus, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt and hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is the way of Jesus, and this is what he calls all of those who say, I am his. And the reality is, is that, you know, as I've prepared for this this week, this passage is one of those ones that just exposes just how far I feel like I fall short. Of all the different moments in, in a week in my life where I have not actually taken his way, but I've just settled for the way of the world. And it doesn't actually lead to life. It's not the life that he intended, at least. But we have an invitation to find our life and what He means for us in Him and in His words. So what I want to do